want you to listen. Then what? Share it. The Melbourne Youth and Social Workers Group and the Knowledge on Tick podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Boonarong and Wurundjeri people, their elders past and present. We would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the land, her children and our families. We would like all of us to show respect for each other, Mother Nature and the creatures on the land and the sea. Hey everyone, the Melbourne Youth and Social Work Facebook group would like to welcome you to the Knowledge on Tick podcast. We are Josh and Nat and we will be your co-hosts for the potty. Knowledge on Tick is a podcast offering real-life conversations and insights every week with workers in the field covering a range of topics surrounding the youth and social work world. We are so grateful to have you here and happy listening. Welcome back to another episode of Knowledge on Tick. Uh, you're joined by Josh. And Nat. And today we're joined by Faisy. What's up? How you doing? <laughs> Thanks for joining us today, bro. No worries. Could you give us a little bit of an introduction about yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Faisy. Uh, my background is Samoan Tongan. Uh, born and raised in New Zealand. Uh, lived in multiple countries during my time, but now I've just resided in Melbourne for the last four years. Mm. Um, happily married with one kid. Pretty cute kid. I mean, I didn't say it. She did. <laughs> um, Apple in the tree and all that. Yeah. You know. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, now I'm here. Beautiful. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, we start off all our podcast with a few questions to kind of get to know you a little bit. Cool. First a little question. bit about you. So first question is what did your parents do for work? Um, so my mum, she's a handline operator for New Zealand Post. Right. Um, so basically she handles mail um, and she's been doing that, I guess, for the last 22 years. Wow. Yeah. Um, she's stayed with the same company and still works there to this day. Um, my dad, he is a youth worker. What? He's also a social worker. Um, so he worked in a juvenile prison in New Zealand yep. for a number of years. And just recently, he's got into the mental health sector. So now he's working with providing support services and things like that for mental health patients who exit prison. It always, I always get very curious about people's parents who are in the field. Yeah. And then they're in the field. Is that, was that a motivator no, at all? I hate that actually. Like, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't want to say what my dad did because <laughs> I did not choose what I did because of my dad. Like, if, it's just, it was funny. I was going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> Say my dad's like an astronaut or something. <laughs> but um, nah, so it definitely, now that I think think about it, it definitely is a motivating factor, Um, I guess. Because um, my dad is the only male influence I had in my life growing up. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I guess I can kind of look back and reflect a bit and, and, and think that, yeah, he did kind of his work that kind of influence, I guess, the decisions I've made now. Yeah. Um, in terms of what, what I want to do. Yeah. Did you, cool. when you were growing up, has your dad always been in that field, like from when you were born? Yeah. Well, my, you... Sorry, my dad started yeah. off as a painter. And um, there's a, 
the Harbour Bridge in New Zealand, it's in Auckland, he will always remind me he uh, was part of the crew that painted that bridge. Um, I do not care. <laughs> to be honest, but he'll happily remind us every time we drive over it. I feel like everyone's parents did that. Like back in the day before my dad was in telecoms, he had his own landscape business. Yeah. You drive past any fucking brickwork ever. He's like, see that brick wall there? I built that. Did you really? Or not that yeah. one, but I've done one like yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. That's like my dad would drive over and goes, you see that pole? I was on that. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome, Dad. Uh, so, yeah, my dad was actually a painter. And then um, back, I think back in the 90s, it wasn't paying too well. And um, my dad found out that he's allergic to <gasps> oil-based paints. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, no. Because my mom kept wondering why he kept coming home with swollen eyes. <laughs> My mum just literally thought he was on the Mary Jane, like, every day. My mum was like, what are you doing? And then he went and got tests done and everything like that, and then they found out he was allergic to, like, um, something inside oil-based paints. Right. And so he couldn't do it. It wasn't paying that much, and then he went and got a diploma in social working. Mm. Right. Which he thought it was pretty cool at the time. Yeah. And then I guess, yeah, ever since I can remember, he's been working and mm. in, in, in kind of the community services field. Now, how did you, when you were a kid, how did that resonate with you? Did you understand what your dad did? No. Nah. It was kind of like I thought my dad was a spy. Because <laughs> yeah. he never talked about work. Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And because he worked in a juvenile prison, I, I now knowing a lot of the stuff is you can't really talk about it. You know, a lot of the stuff is confidential and there's privacy and things like that. So I always used to, my friends used to always ask, like, what does your dad do? And I was like, he's a social worker. And he goes, okay, what does he do? And I'm like, He's yeah. a social worker. He's and a then, you know, And then I used to always ask my dad, I'm like, how's work today? And dad would be like, yeah, it was good. Yeah. You know? And then, like, as I got older, I guess he started to divulge a bit more information and things like that. And then I found out later on that he worked in a juvenile prison. And then after that, I found out that he worked with a lot of my friends in the juvenile prison uh-huh. as juveniles. Yeah, right. Um, because cause he knew them growing up because we played rugby together and then a lot of them would end up at work. Right. My dad would say, I saw so-and-so at work today. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I was just like, because one of the things that's come up recently, so my son is turning, goodness, he's turning five, and we've had some, like, conversations, especially with, um, like, COVID-19 or just more around, like, what did you do today and stuff. Mm. And it's kind of like the barbecue. We always make the joke about the, what, what do you say you do when you, when people ask you what you do at a barbecue? Yeah. And as difficult as that is to explain, explaining to a child, he's like, what did you do today? And I was like, well, like, met some of the people that I work with and what did you do with them? I was like, talk to them, you know, Mm. like just kind of explaining it because you can't get into details, not that he would understand, but it's so difficult for him to kind of get his head around it. And it's kind of, I'm just only in the past couple of days been reflecting on, I wonder when the, the like that kind of penny will drop for him or, you know, it's just interesting it's funny that you say that as well, is because I think now the conversations I have with my dad, we're so like our understanding is almost on the same level because of the work that we do. And <clears throat> I was just reflecting on what you said and thought about like my wife. Like my wife would be like, "How's your day at work?" And like I can't explain to her in a way that she understands what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, she explains to me what she does. I have no idea what she does, you know. And it really yeah. kind of makes you think about like, do we really know each other? <laughs> That's a bit deep, but like. It's funny though, because I remember when I first started out my career and I worked at corrections. Yeah. And I remember my friends used to tell people that I was a judge. 
And I was like, no, 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 I'm not a judge. And they were like, I don't know. She's like at court all the time. She's like a judge, you know. I'm like, yeah. no. But it, like it, a high court judge too with the wigs and stuff. Yeah, that'd be fancy as. Yes. But it's funny trying to explain to other people. It's it very is. different. It's an it odd, odd world. But right in the 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 flip of that as well as what the fuck do you actually do at work all day? Exactly, 100%. <laughs> and, like, I don't understand. Like, I mean, I understand to a certain extent, but, like, there's a certain point where you're just like, no, it's all yeah. in my head now. Mm. Yeah. 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 There you go. Funny. Um, who is the most <laughs> famous or well-known person in your phone book? Besides myself. <laughs> um, I actually was looking at my phone today and I realised a close friend of mine is a comedian now and he's actually pretty famous. In New Zealand, I don't know if you guys know him. His name's Pax. Um, so obviously, if you don't know him, then he's not that famous. Then um, <laughs> that's cool. I mean, that's not fair. Just different circles. I'll definitely look him up there. Ah, uh, yeah, his name's Pax, and he's on like the equivalent of um, Have You Been Paying Attention? Yeah, like he features on that show in New Zealand. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I hope he doesn't listen to this because I actually haven't talked to him in years. <laughs> Word. How do you spell it? P A X. Okay. Oh, I'm going to tag like, him in the like, show notes. Like 10 packs. <laughs> See, now I really hope he doesn't listen. I'm sure he'd love that you just referenced him to some sanitary yeah. items. But he's 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 hilarious. Love his material. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, he's an NZ comedian. And, yeah. So we're not, we don't know him yet because he's not famous in Australia, but as soon as he is, we'll claim him as our own. Yeah. He'll be super famous. That yeah. tends to be how it goes. I.e. the Pavlova. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, oh, that's uh, cool, though. There's another person that yeah. we claim is our own that's New Zealand, and I can't think of it. There's a whole bunch. Oh, like Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe's Crow the one I'm house. thinking of. Yeah. Mm. At least fine. Crow, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah I mean. Sam yeah. Neill. Yeah, sorry. Any more before we move on? It's all right. You sure? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what job wouldn't you do? Oh, wow. That was a good question. Mm. I think a police officer. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. To be honest, it takes a certain kind of person to be a police officer or any kind of person that's in kind of a role that demands authority mm-hmm. or dictates authority. Right. Um, I think just to the kind of person that I am, it just kind of goes against everything that I want to do and what I believe in mm. in terms of um, work. And I think I came to that realisation pretty early on in terms of um, understanding what field I want to work in. Um, although if you look at me, I'd probably be the best suit for those kind of roles. I mean, if I was yeah. in a dangerous situation, you're exactly. someone I'd want standing behind me. Being six four, six pack, <laughs> dark, handsome. handsome. <laughs> Good beard. <laughs> but um, nah, I think yeah, any kind of role that kind of asserts its own authority on people, I, mm. I definitely wouldn't probably want to work in that field. Mm. Um, just due to my nature as a person, I couldn't do it. Mm. We'll probably get into a little bit later around like the previous roles and things you've yeah. done, but um, you used to work in a prison, you know, yeah. in a recreation yeah. space. Yeah. So you kind of sat yeah. in like a grey zone. Exactly. Was that a challenge for you? Yeah, I guess. Um, so we, so in, in kind of the prison system, you're kind of either identified as like custodial or um, VPS, which is basically offender services hmm. um and thankfully i fell into the offender services kind of side of things where we provided the support services and kind of <clears throat> facilitated activities and programs and stuff like that for um prisoners hmm. and so but being there as well you're so like 
you're basically on the front line. You get to experience a lot of things. So you're seeing like offices and stuff like that and the way that they go about um, doing their work and performing their duties and stuff like that <clears throat> just kind of, um, I guess, galvanized the fact that I don't like doing that mm-hmm. kind of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or I wouldn't be doing that kind of work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, the next question is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, it's probably something that I've I've read um, in terms of like, and the advice is um, God never tests us beyond our capacity. Mm. So we're never tested in a way that we can't overcome something. Mm. So anything that we're given or tested on, like we can overcome it. Yeah. As human beings. Mm. You know what I mean? So um, I kind of live by that kind of, that quote, that mantra. Mm. And understanding that any kind of tests or difficulties that come my way, it's nothing that I can overcome. Mm. I like that. There's a lot of like solace in that. Yeah. Yeah. I I really, I think that's similar um, to trying to think about how to word this without sort of reaching my sort of personal relationships. But for someone, if they were to, um, to have a child, yeah. born with a disability, yeah. that you would take solace in knowing that you've been given this this mm. child, but you are capable mm-hmm. and you have the power and the strength to support that child. And yeah. that if you weren't um, up for it, then you wouldn't have been exactly given the child to look after. Oh, 100%. Yeah, mm. and that could be obviously in many different scenarios yeah. with whatever you're faced with in life. But, yeah, I like that one. Mm. Good one. I'm going to write that one. I write all the quotes down after we ask people, yeah, to be fair. Cool. They're all on my desk. Just look at them and reflect, you know. I think I don't think there's been one piece of advice that we've asked people about that I've been like, yeah, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> all of them I've been like, oh, my God, that's so, that's so sweet. I can feel that one. <laughs> I have to write down. So the last question is in regards to your work, what was your aha moment? When did you know this was your jam? This is the thing you wanted Um, to <laughs> Uh, in university, <clears throat> so um, I worked part-time for a mentor program, which was called Mates. Shout out to Tanya. Uh, she was the one that got me the job. Legend. Um, she'll never listen to this. Though. Um, <laughs> but she she got me the job, and basically Mates was a mentoring program for um, schools in New Zealand who had um, kids that wouldn't make university or didn't have the grades high enough to get into university. So they provided a mentoring service that would help kids um, kind of promote university entrance and kind of help them with schoolwork and things like that. Right. So she got me into into this program. And a part of the program, we ran a camp, a big camp, once a year for them. And um, we'd invite all the students that were part of the program to come out to a camp. And I guess it was at the camp that I actually led one of the, I led a team at the camp that looked after the, the programs, like the recreational side of programs and stuff like that. And I guess it was from there and kind of engaging the youth. And I think I had one particular engagement with a youth who told me that um, he never, ever thought he would go to university. And um, he told me, I was like, oh, where's your brother? And he's like, oh, my brother's in prison. And I was like, what about your dad? And he was like, my dad's drunk. Mm. And like, what about your mom? He's like, my mom works three jobs. And, like, how about your sister? And he's like, I have 10 brothers and sisters. And I was just like, wow, that's crazy. And I guess he was like, because of the program, um, it didn't necessarily, like, get him into university, but put him on track to 
um, I guess, prioritising his life towards heading in that direction. Yeah. And I guess seeing seeing that the positive outlook that our program and our and our people and our mentors can give to people um, kind of put me on a path that was like I really enjoyed what I was doing mm-hmm. on that front and I want to continue to work in that kind of sphere of um, working with youth and kind of motivating them to towards positive change in their life. Yeah. And so I guess since then I've kind of just, which is funny because at university I study statistics and sociology. <laughs> has nothing to do with what I'm doing right now. But it kind of put me on track in terms of, like, what I enjoyed doing. And so from there I kind of figured, okay, I like helping out youth. I like working in community services. So since then my path has just led me in the community services direction. Mm. And since then I've just, yeah, worked in that sector ever since. Cool. And you've, I know you've been in the youth work sector a little bit. Mm. And I'm sure we'll touch on it in a little bit, but how did that leave you, lead you to being overseas? How, yeah, how so did that I, come about? I don't know, actually. I think I was, I think I was definitely at a point in my life, and this is like irrespective of my career, but like I was definitely at a point in my life where um, I was lacking a little bit of direction myself. <clears throat> and then my granddad passed away 2012, uh, New Year's Eve. Hmm. Um. And then he, that kind of like was an aha moment for me to be like, you need to kind of change something in your life. Yeah. I needed to change. I needed a, a fresh kind of start. And so I looked up, actually, no, a friend of mine recommended, why don't you go um, do some service or do some volunteer work overseas? And I was like, why not? And so uh, he gave me a, because uh, I'm a Baha'i, we can we had the opportunity to go volunteer work in um, Israel. Right. And so he put me in contact with a few people there. I sent off my CV and my application and stuff. And then I sent it off in January. I heard back in February and I flew out in March. Wow. So in the span of three months, my life just went zero to 100. Yeah. And so I moved there in March to Israel. And then I lived there for about three years, just volunteer work, mm-hmm. just doing volunteer work. And then that kind of realigned my life back into the direction that I wanted to go. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. And then that's how I ended up, I guess, back in the community services path and back to doing what I what I wanted to do. Mm. So for people listening, including myself, could you explain the religion of Baha'i? Yeah. Uh, so basically the Baha'i faith is a world religion um, whose teachings and principles and belief are based on unity of religion, unity of people, and kind of just unity of belief. And I guess this whole idea in terms of um, our guiding principles are also aligned with those of other religions in Mm. the sense that we believe that this message of love that comes from God isn't particularly for one religion. It's for every single religion and for every single person. And I guess this, this message of love and unity Respect and equality um, are kind of stem to our our core principles and how we should live our life. And one of the key, I guess, practices of our religion is um, working within the community and it's based on service. Mm. So community-based service work, so getting out into the community and helping our youth and our children and our families kind of 
understand that service is the key towards, I guess, happiness. Mm. And I guess this whole idea of creating a unified vision towards understanding that through service we're able to kind of live a better life and offer more towards humanity. And is Israel like the <clears throat> like a center yeah. country for the religion? Yeah, so that's where our administrative body sits. Okay. Mm-hmm. So our administrative center sits in Israel. Hi for Israel. Shout out. <laughs> um, that's where, yeah, that's where our administrative body sits there in Israel. Um, but the faith originated in Iran. Okay. Um, and kind of spread from there. So we've only been around, I think, 175 years. Okay. Um, and the, the faith is just kind of like spread rapidly through the world. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I, I was able to go to Hyde for Israel and volunteer there for like three years just living there. And what did that look like? What was the volunteering that you would be doing there? Uh, so basically, because it was the administrative center of the world, um, Baha'is from all over the world were able to come and pilgrimage there mm-hmm. and kind of visit the center and um, kind of visit our holy places and stuff because we have a few holy places there. <clears throat> and so there's about seven to 800 volunteers that uh, work there or volunteer there. And so <clears throat> and there's a variety of departments that work there. We have people who work in the kitchen, the gardens, um, security, correspondence, translations and stuff like that. So there's any amount of departments that you can volunteer in and work in and there's different amounts of times that you can offer for service and stuff like that. So I served in a security capacity when I was there. Yeah, right. So I looked after the security department for about three years. Wow. Yeah. What did that entail? So you had like, <clears throat> we had 24-7 security, so... And we had Baha'i volunteers and we also worked with local staff as well um, to kind of man the properties and look after our Baha'i properties and stuff like that around the clock. And so it's just basically coordinating those efforts and kind of recruitment and training and development and stuff like that. Okay. And did they have security because of threats from other uh, religions or cultural groups? Mm -hmm. or Mainly it's just for... To show presence, I guess, and I guess our biggest problems were just people jumping the fence to get fit photos and stuff like that, pictures on in the gardens and stuff like that. Right. Um, because it's actually pretty nice uh, if you looked it up, Baha'i Gardens and high Yeah, right. Really beautiful. Mm. Yeah. You need the ticking clock for your pause, Matt. No. I- I went to say something and then I've choked on my own saliva. That's really embarrassing. <coughs> I wish I had to fill a question, but I'm dying to hear what you have to say. I'm really sorry. My question was just about how you... <laughs> start again. I'm going to get Ma to cut that out. Uh, my question was just going to be about, so you did your three years there and then did you come to Australia from Israel or did you go back to New Zealand before you... Yeah, I did. I met my wife in Israel. Yeah, so I met my wife there. Um, unfortunately, she was from Australia. Um, so it's pretty, pretty good crap around here. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god, gosh! Of all the women I could have met in the Middle East, I met someone from Australia. Um, but no, definitely, I met my wife there, and then uh, we decided to get married, and so we came back. We got married in Melbourne. Was she volunteering? Yeah, she was also a volunteer there as well, uh, which was pretty cool. So we got to spend a bit of time there together as well which was awesome. And then we decided we'd get married. So we came back to Melbourne, got married in Melbourne, and then we decided to 
kind of moved to New Zealand for a bit to spend a bit of time there also with my family as well because I've been away for so long. Mm. Uh, so we lived in New Zealand for about six months, uh, six to eight months, and then we moved back to Melbourne and settled down in Melbourne and been here since. Mm. And that's when you did the custody role? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So before, so when I was living in New Zealand, I worked for the Ministry of Social Development. Okay. Uh, so worked, Sounds fancy. Yeah, no, nah, it wasn't really. <laughs> I mean... All I did was we looked after the portfolios and things like that for um, social housing in New Zealand. Right. So there was one department that looked after all social housing across mm. New Zealand. Okay. Um, so we looked after that client base. Uh, we handled all issues and things like that that came in mm. in regards to that. And so I did that for about six months. And then we decided we we're going to move to Australia. So then we moved here to Australia. And then I got a job working for a non-for-profit organization which uh, helped prisoners transition out out of prison back into society. Yeah. So they were primarily with them within kind of like a three-month period Mm. in terms of providing support services for them Mm. and reconnecting them with families and stuff like that. And such such an important thing to happen. I don't know if people realise the, the, um, I guess, the difference that um, having a transitional program Mm. from being in custody to... Oh, um, or being incarcerated back into the community can be like it's it's not necessarily things that we as the general community or the general public think of you know like Mikey's or even a bank card for that mm. matter is something that we just know as an everyday part of yeah. our life but for someone that might have been incarcerated for a significant period yeah. of time even things like navigating public transport and oh, stuff yeah. like that it's actually so pivotal to someone's rehabilitation mm. to have those transitional programs oh for sure yeah because a lot of people, they've lost touch with kind of society and I guess that social aspect of life, it becomes a little bit different when you've been in prison for some time, you know? Mm. And I guess a lot of them, I guess one of the main problems was kind of just socialising with the public was a very kind of a barrier between them and their rehabilitation, mm. you know what I mean? And so having that kind of contact with someone, like a support worker or something that was kind of, that's kind of a soft re-entry back into kind of civilization for them. Yeah. What would three months look like for someone who's got out of prison and they're reintegrating the community with this with the help of a support worker? Yeah. So a lot of them came out with like corrections orders. Yeah. So um, they had to report um, to the community corrections officer, um, and so we'd be a part of that sometimes, meeting them there, and also just making sure that they actually made the appointments. <laughs> a lot of the time. Um, and the funny thing is, is some of some of them would get out and live on the other side I'm of Melbourne. Sure <laughs> All right, Siri. <laughs> and a lot of them would live like so far away from where they actually had to go and report for their, yeah, their um, their, um, their catch ups with their. And so, I guess a lot of the time was just kind of making sure that they would arrive to their appointments on time, that they were adhering to their their kind of um, what's it called conditions conditions yeah. Um, which sounds easy enough. It's to not, me, but it's not for them. Nah, and it's not even as someone that's worked in corrections, even implementing those conditions. Sometimes yeah. you're like, "Fuck, like, I'd struggle to do just this." Just be Come home on. by ten p.m. Like, <laughs> yeah, for them, that's like mm. like death. Yeah. yeah what are some like? I guess part of the thing we're always trying to um, like the knowledge and information we're trying to give people is things that they may not know. Yeah. yeah. So what would be like conditions on a corrections order? So you've not like you've said. Um, they have curfew. Like a curfew. Yeah, it could be. 10 and yeah. say 7 a.m. or yeah. 9 a.m. Yeah. yeah, it could be non-associations. Exactly. 
could be exclusion zones, could be treatment and rehabilitation for like mental health, drug and alcohol. Um, no driving. Yeah, could be. Like, yeah, so there's a number of um, back a couple of years ago we didn't originally have, well, we didn't like um, electronic monitoring and they introduced that around a similar time to the parole reform. Mm. Um, and so then that's when they could, I guess, enforce conditions a lot easier than what they used to, to say, oh, you know, you're not allowed in the suburb of Northcote but being able to actually work that condition and be able to monitor that condition is a bit tricky when yeah. who's, you know, exactly. Tom, Jeff and Harry doing whatever the hell they want, whereas if you've got an ankle bracelet on somebody, you can sort of monitor when they're stepping into suburbs. Mm. Um, but, yeah, there's, like, a ton of questions that they can have. It could be not to consume alcohol, not to take drugs of dependence, mm. um, yeah, curfews, like you said, um, not to contact certain people, whether that's victim or co-offenders. And that's a hard one as well. Yeah. Because <clears throat> a lot of the time, um, like, IVOs are imposed by police, mm. not by the actual victims and things like that. So mm. a lot of them mm. struggle with the kind of contact aspect of, like, potentially reaching out to a spouse or something like that. Yeah, or family. Like, yeah. it could be their mom or mm. their sister or their brother. Or one that I find really interesting is the non-association of, um, like, co-offenders, which... I appreciate in its premise. Yeah. It makes sense to me. Yeah. But sometimes that's that person's their family. That's the one, you know, sense of belonging yeah. that they've got and you're telling them that they can't contact them. Mm. So then they just become completely socially isolated. Mm. So it's a bit of a tricky line in yeah. the sense of you want them to still be a functioning member mm. of society and to engage, like you were saying before, mm. even learning to reintegrate and have conversations with normal people in society yeah. as opposed to being in prison. Mm. Um it's always a tricky one. I remember guys would come out on parole all the time and they'd be like, oh, you know, I met this dude in the joint. Like, he's doing really well. I'm doing really well. We're going to AA together. We're doing this. And you'd be like, you just can't do that. Yeah. But, and, and look, our system's a little bit different. Like, in America, you cannot, like, associate with any known criminal. So mm. you can be sent back to prison for that, just associating mm. with somebody that has a criminal history. But, um, yeah, it's a, they're, they're interesting conditions, I, think, I guess. I think as well, as like... <clears throat> And this is not a knock to the system, but like, and I think we struggle to understand how hard it is sometimes rehabilitating this mm. and the kind of system that we have in place. Because I've seen, and this is not the case all the time, but I've seen people like clients who really want to give it a go, but like just struggle with, I guess, the hand that they're dealt in the situation they've been put in, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so sometimes making it to appointments and stuff like that, they genuinely want to be there, but they just can't. Yeah. Either because they just, couldn't get there because of the bus or because they had to juggle work and trying to get to an appointment. They had to, you know, like mm. support or make a livelihood for my family or go to this appointment, you know. And so yeah. a lot of them struggle with that and then they just end up back in prison, mm. you know, yeah. on remand or something like that. And, and you see that and you kind of struggle to think like, wow, we're supposed to have systems in place that are there to help them, you know, as best as they can. But mm. And we spoke about this last week, I think. We um, were talking about, what did we say? What's the one thing about the work we struggle the most with or something like that mm. or the, our least favourite part of the role? And I'd said mine is the the system mm. and, and not to slag the system, but we have, you know, young people that are brought into the system to protect them because they're a victim of mm. something, but then they become a victim of the system yeah, because the system's not built wow. for our current society and our yeah. current community. Yeah, that's right. I described it as a big machine that was built to, to function a certain way, yeah. which was great. But the the I want to say the problem, but the 
I guess, yeah, the problems or the other um, things that have developed around that, the system can't mm. keep up with it anymore and it's not functioning properly. Yeah. But it's so big and so powerful now that it's really difficult for us to be able to change it because so the machine's just, so, just so functioning true. along. Um, yeah. yeah. Did, um, did you find that, that the, the process of, because I'm assuming that you could be exited from prison with a support worker and an organisation mm. like the one you worked for, or you could just be straight exit out into the community yep. and, and, and not. Depending on, what you're re- depending on what your release conditions are. Like some people just straight release. Yeah. yeah. No conditions, no CCO. Mm. Um, and then there's other people that have, that need that support. <clears throat> and some people like who get straight release need support, mm. but just don't get it or don't know that they're there mm. a lot of the time. And I don't know if it's because there's just so many people in the system that it's just, it becomes like you said, like machine where people just churn through people all the time and just a lot of people fall through the cracks. But yeah, a lot of people just don't know what's available mm. a lot of the time. Yeah. And don't understand that there is support out there for them, but yeah, just don't know how to access it or haven't heard of it. Yeah. Mm. Do you think that, and I'm conscious, we're always conscious, I think we have our conversations that that we're not trying to, like you said, that kind of slag off systems, yeah. whether it's the prison system, the, the you know, the child protection system, what whichever yeah. we're talking about. But do you think that there could more could be done for prisoners while they're in prison in terms of preparing them for a more successful release? Yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah, okay. And that's where I think, like, <clears throat> a lot is changing within the correction system. Uh, we're not quite there yet, but definitely the changes are there and are happening. It's just not a, a at the pace or at the rate that we'd like it to be. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and it's just a, such a slow burn. Mm. But the changes are coming, but it's kind of like, I don't know, like, trying to teach a dog old, old dog, dog new tricks. tricks. You know what I mean? Kind yeah, of yeah. And, and I think what essentially needs to happen is that we need to kind of be rid of this old kind of system and kind of, and that's the that's the problem now. This The system is so, so old and so, like, ingrained mm. in yeah. what's happening right now that it's just this, the change is just going to be so slow. Yeah, and I think it's yeah. one of the biggest changes is, is the rehabilitative side of things and mm. the restorative justice. But you've got, you know, the old school workers that were yeah. that were around when it was, you know, uh-huh. yeah. it was just like bad yeah. dude did something bad, sent him to prison, oh, no yeah. supports, you know, and it was an old way of thinking. And we've sort of, as a society and as a system, we're we're moving mm. slowly towards restorative justice and having a focus on rehabilitation because, you know, the reality is if people are supported and rehabilitated, mm. they're going to have a better option or better chance of success. Yeah. But you've sort of got, like you said, the um, old dog new tricks thing. Um, you've got these old workers that are sort of entrenched, yeah. and I don't mean old in age, but I just mean old school workers that yeah. were in oh, we, yeah. we're in an old system yeah. that are sort of stuck in their ways or, or like that way of yeah. working. Oh, you know, yeah, they I like understand. the punitive stuff. They they don't necessarily mm. like the restorative stuff. It's seen as seen as like the fluffy option yeah. to working mm. with people who are, as they would say, criminals. Yeah. Um. So it, it that's a large part of it as well. Like mm. how much does like a, a dynamic within a team mm. implement how the work goes whether that's prosperous or not so i think it's it's you're right it's slow burning yeah because there's a number of different factors that sort of go into it one of which is the workforce and it's just so prevalent and like and i can only speak to the correction system you know what i mean in the sense that like it's just you you can see what 
what needs to change, but it's just so hard to change it in yeah. the sense that, like, and I don't know if this is going to like sound offensive, but, like, the people at the top don't necessarily understand what's happening at the bottom. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? On the ground and stuff like that. And so I think, like, I'm definitely of the belief that learning should come from the grassroots up. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And and the stuff that I feel like happens within our system, a lot of it comes from the top down. Mm. It's very top down heavy. Mm. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, it's tough. It's tough when you know thing, how things could work better, but you can't do anything about it. Yeah. Because, yeah. And I think a lot of the, one of the things that kind of opened my eyes up a bit in the correction system was, um, yeah, just seeing how people's approach towards rehabilitation was very different mm. to what I believe rehabilitation should look like, you know what I mean? And like you said, like taking someone out to the back, beating them up, yeah. or something like that, you know what I mean? Or screaming in someone's face and or something like that, you know, or throwing food at them or something like that, believing that that's going to rehabilitate them. And yeah. You know I mean, it's just, yeah, we've come a long way since those kind of practices, but... Obviously, some people still believe that that would work, but mm. I think it would be challenging um, that the adult prison space because <clears throat> you have that mix of prisoners that need the rehabilit- rehabilitative um, lens, but then the corrections workers, especially because the correction system is as old as like time, especially That's in nice. Melbourne, like that history, mm. like old Melbourne jail, yeah. Pentridge, like there's still yeah. guys that work. I'm sure now in corrections that worked at Pentridge. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Heaps. Be wow. Heaps. War stories that would go around. Yeah. Yeah. But you also, because, you, yeah, like you've got all of those people who would benefit from the more rehabilitative style. Yeah. Then you've also got those like staunch old school crooks, mm. you know, air quotes. Yeah. Um, who probably don't respond to like a rehabilitative style mm. and yeah. need like a hard line. You don't cross it. If you cross it, this is what happens day after day, I'm imagining. Yeah. So it's it's really, it would be super challenging to try and figure out a system that balances one, like a scale that's so big with so many different variables all the way along it. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I guess it's just a reflection, like thinking about, oh, my gosh, how do you manage, like, the hardest of dudes mm. who have committed the most serious of offences mm. with people who have, like, substance use issues, mental health mm. issues, disabilities, all that sort of stuff in not in the same place because as we know there's multiple adult <laughs> prisons there across the state 10 12 something maybe more I couldn't tell you yeah I'd say it's probably about 12 mm. maybe but yeah just a reflection just the challenge that it would be but yeah it can't be a one size fits all that's that's definitely no. yeah. what we can acknowledge yeah pigeonholing is going to be the biggest mistake you make there mm. definitely needs to be like a cultural change mm. you know what I mean what are the people what are some of the prisoners um, that you worked with or that had got out of prison when you were in the, su- the support worker role, the best people to speak to, I think, sometimes are the prisoners themselves. Did they yeah. have an opinion? Well, I'm sure they had lots of opinions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <wow>. <clears throat> Was there like a common thread? Um, yeah, to be honest with you, a lot of the time is <laughs> with support workers and stuff like that, it's generally not the prisoner's fault. It's always the uh, support worker's fault. Mm. Um, they're never at fault. No, they never do anything wrong. Um, but generally, like, the thing is, is in working with a kind of system like that, you, for every 10 bad people that bag you out, you'll always find one that's always, like, willing to be like, yeah, 
it was definitely my fault. I definitely could have done this better. I could have, you know what I mean? Mm. And so, and I guess that's the kind of silver lining in the kind of industry you work in, you know what I mean? you got to take the, the good out of the bad and, and very often, more often than not, you, it's hard to find the good. But when you do, you kind of have mm. to latch onto it and kind of work with it as best as you can. Mm. And there were a lot of, like, in my time working in prison, there a lot of people that had the services provided for them, had everything done for them and would still come back. Mm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or a lot of them would talk a big game and say they'll never come back. I'm going to change this, change that. And had the... Um, supports in place to provide them with that opportunity to do that but six seven months later you see them come back mm. you know what I mean and it's like what happened he's like oh just saw the boys one night <laughs> yeah and then <laughs> all downhill from me yeah. was in here <laughs> <laughs> and I'm back <laughs> you know and so um, that's not to say that like support services um, don't do the work because a lot of them out there do do the work and provide the opportunities for these people for the uh, prisons to rehabilitate but mm. again like it's a two-way street you know what I, mean? so. mm. I always used to say um and i say it to my young people now but when i was at corrections i always used to say we can do this like the easy way or mm. we can do this the hard way and mm. i'll come to the party here no like not in a scary way i'm not fucking scary in the slightest so you play good cop, but i cop. would but i would <laughs> say like i'll come to the party here like in and in the the avenue of like obviously there's parameters in which you had to work yeah but you could be supportive within those parameters or you could be an absolute fucking dick if you wanted to be um and so i would say you know i'll come to the party but i'm not going to stand there alone with fairy bread and they'd always fucking piss themselves laughing and be like the fuck have you got fairy bread for but then i would be like well you've got to come to the party and bring something as well because i'm not going to stand there by myself and they were like all right and so then when things would happen across the time in their order i would be like am i standing at the party by myself again and they'd be like Oh, yeah, all right. And it might be, you know, I got you a taxi voucher. I got them to pick you up. I got you in on that program and you didn't get out of bed. So I stood at that party alone, didn't I? And they'd be like, right, okay. And so I'd constantly refer it back to this stupid analogy that they remembered because I said fucking fairy bread and they're grown men. But I use it like now with the young people as well. Like, you want a new phone? I'm not going to stand at the party by myself with the fairy bread, am I? So what are you going to do to be a part of this plan? Because, yes, you can put everything in place. Mm. You could have the best of the best workers, the best of the best care team, supports, whatever that might be. But they also need to want it too. Yeah. There's got to, they've 100%. got to buy in too. So, 100%. yeah, you can have the best laid plans that fall through. I'm saying, I think mm. one thing that I got from that is like, there isn't one size true that fits all. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Like every single person necessitates a different plan or a unique approach. You know what I mean? And I mm. feel like sometimes we're kind of told to kind of throw the book, the same book, at every single client. Mm. You know what I mean? And our approach needs to change for every single person because every single person operates and understands and has a different capacity from the one previous to them and after them. Yep. You know what I mean? And so that's hard work for us in terms yeah. of changing our approach all the time. But, like, I feel like that's what we need to do in terms of how we can engage better and approach rehabilitation with people Yeah. a lot better. Yep. Yeah. I'm interested, you mentioned before, um, your history in New Zealand, mm. like working history and then coming here. Are there any sort of, um, like, standouts for you in, like, the differences of our systems or, like, the, I guess, complexities that the people we work with have or any themes or anything like that? Like, are you like, oh, in New Zealand it's like this, but here, like, it's... Oh, um, I don't know. I think one of the biggest differences, and I, I guess a lot of people probably can identify with this or understand this, is that 
there's a bit more of a cultural approach towards rehabilitation in New Zealand. Yeah. So I guess the the integration of our indigenous culture and towards our rehabilitation or to a certain extent having some of that cultural aspect within our rehabilitation, I feel like um, is very different from how it works here. Yeah. Um, and I guess our the appreciation of our culture and how it works um, in our system as well is also um, greatly lends towards, I guess, um, how successful I believe a lot of our work is in New Zealand. Um, that's not to say it isn't appreciated and isn't worked in here, but I feel like, yeah, it's just, it's definitely something that's um, strong within our kind of our system there mm. in New Zealand, which is a bit, which is, yeah, um, yeah, probably one of the biggest differences I guess I see. Other than that, I guess, I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm beating the same drum, but like every system's corrupt. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like, yeah, I guess there's every system kind of has its its flaws, yeah, and things like that. But I feel like they all kind of operate to a certain extent the same way. Mm. Um, but yeah, I guess the cultural difference is probably the biggest thing I see. Mm. Yeah, and I asked you that as a loaded question because, as you know, I love New Zealand as a country. I ultimately that's where I'd want to be. Um, but I'm sorry, I'm married now. <laughs> But um, there is a documentary, and I can't recall what it's called. It'll come to me at some stage, but it talks about the child protection. It um, follows the child protection Mm. um, sort of lens, I guess, over in New Zealand and just um, post that. I really liked that documentary and looked into it a little bit and often in most things is referenced around culture and traditions and um, their respect and love for the land and um, community and stuff like that. And it's not something that I've experienced as much here. Like we we have an Indigenous culture Mm. here, obviously, but like as we've talked about before, it's not something that was broadly um, learnt throughout school or it's not something that was entrenched in my practice. Um, You know, there's obviously people that identify as um, Aboriginal or they might, um, you know, have their own different cultural backgrounds, but it's not something that was entrenched in Mm. practice because of X, you know, we're going to do this or, yeah, yeah, it was probably a standout for me. (laughs) It's a loaded question, sorry. But also as well, I feel like it's a lot easier, it's made a lot easier to kind of incorporate those kind of um, cultural practices into rehabilitation because, that stuff, like you, like you were mentioning, is entrenched in us from a young age. Yeah. In our schools. Yeah. So this idea of culture, like we learned from the age of five, or like even before we went to school, mm. like preschool and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So yeah. For us to go into a juvenile system or into a, a rehabilitative system, and see this culture thing, it's not like, oh wow, what is that? It's kind of like, oh my gosh, here we go again. Yeah. You know okay. what I mean? They're kind of being reminded of that again. You know, mm. that whole aspect of culture. Whereas here, I feel like it's more just kind of like put a Band-Aid on it and see if it sticks. Yeah. Kind of approach, you know what I mean? Yeah. And because a lot of like kids and stuff that were born and raised here have an understanding of what the Indigenous culture is about, but do they really understand it? Like they know what it is, but do they really understand it? Mm. You know, and its significance towards, I guess, their identity as Australians. Yeah. Because I can identify strongly with the Māori culture. Yeah. Even though I'm not Māori. Yeah. You know, myself, but I can identify strongly with it and how much I can identify myself Mm. as a Kiwi or as a New Zealander and the whole cultural aspect of it. Mm. You know, because since the age of like two, three, I was singing songs, we're doing, you know, dances and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. 
awesome. Mm. And something I've seen working at um, Parkville, because um, unfortunately, like um, Maldi and Pacific Islander young people are represented in terms yep. of the client base, mm. and a lot of um, a lot of staff from um, New Zealand, Tonga, Samoa, yeah. which is awesome, especially when they're in your team. Um, <laughs> but the respect level, the difference, not necessarily that they would that that the young people would be disrespectful to me as someone who like was you know white australian or not from yeah. new zealand or whatever but the respect level between them and the staff member yeah. of uh, from that particular culture mm. but also the lack of kind of general respect from like anglo-australian kids or kids from other backgrounds towards just general like generally mm. the, the concept of like respect your elders mm. yeah which not that i would demand like a respect as being an older person mm. but just in general mm. but you would see it far much more strongly with the yeah like the Maori and Pacifica kids um and then the conversations that they would have with the staff members talking about different countries and cultures songs with the music and they would sing and just it was just yeah it's far different um something that was quite yeah it was quite um it was quite cool to watch yeah to sit back and, and watch and yeah yeah, it's just, it kind of made me jealous a little bit. Like, I love, like, something that I, like, my cultural background is, like, I'm half Australian, half English, like, I'm sort of as white as you can get. And so as a culture, it's, like, just the Aussie-Australian yeah. sort of Anglo-white culture that I have. Yeah. And when you see, like, we were just talking before the podcast about um, Rob, I can, I'm going to struggle to pronounce his name, Mokaraka, yeah. I think, um, who did the Shop Bro yeah. presentation. Yeah. And we like we were chatting with you, Faisy, about this, but for people listening as we got there, um, he was greeting yeah. uh, all the people at the door. Yeah. Um, it was, was like, yeah. The hongi. Yeah. 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 It was literally the sweetest thing. It was, it was awesome. <laughs> Just and the whole. The whole introduction yeah. Yeah. Um, done in Maldi and the singing and mm. the welcome. Mm. And I was like, man, and the this dancing. is so cool. Like, mm. that we don't, like, we don't have this, not no. really. Um yeah, it was just like it's something that you could sit there and really appreciate the culture and the connection that everybody had. Like the warm, the room felt mm, warm yeah. from the energy from people and not that everybody knew each other, but it was just this like energy that was built and it was just really peaceful mm. and it was a really nice time. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, think, I, I don't know, like, and people ask me like why is our culture, why is it like that? And I think it kind of stems from this idea that like, was such a community. Like, we believe in the sense that, like, it doesn't take an individual to raise a child. It takes a community mm-hmm. yeah. to raise one, you know what I mean? And that's such a strong foundation within the Pacific Island and also the, the Maori community and understanding that, like, everyone has a part in terms of raising that child, you know what I mean? And so you grow up around families and communities. And so this idea of just, like, this community love and this wholesome kind of feel is just something that you've just been surrounded with your whole life, you know what I mean? And mm. so this idea of, like, respect and and kind of um, having a kind of straight moral compass stems from just, like, being around older people, seeing it within a community how it's supposed to function from such a young age, mm. you know what I mean? And seeing that and being ingrained from such a young age. And whether or not you get lost in time, that's always just in the back of your mind or still there you know and like obviously you see it with the kids that come through Parkville and things like that you know what I mean mm. it's yeah I remember even playing rugby um when I was younger which could be hard to believe if you know me but um like <laughs> what yeah unbelievable <laughs> you're like 100 kilos Josh. 100 kilos 
yeah. bringing wet. Yeah, bringing wet. <laughs> really wet, like soaking in the bottom of the oceans. Yeah. Um, I love the 100 kilos, eh? Dude, I'll give you some six, of my weight. Six, four, 100 kilos. <laughs> Big boy. Big boy. Have you asked me to go do the security? Yeah. <laughs> um, but like you would go to rugby training and there would be like all the all the, the men sitting around talking on the side yeah. of the hill all mm. the little kids that weren't training yeah. like running around just like playing with each other all yeah. the ladies talking and stuff and the sun would be going down and training is like yeah. well over and everyone's you know hanging yeah. out and then you'd go to like a another sport and people were sitting on the sidelines all the kids are playing the game yeah. mm. No one's talking to each other. Oh, there's a few people that know each yeah, other and stuff, yeah. but it's so different. Yeah. Like I remember a friend of mine growing up, he was Fijian. Yeah. Um, and he said, Oh, you, do you want to come around for dinner? And I was like 15 or whatever. <laughs> mm. I come around and there was like 30, 40 people there. <laughs> yeah. I was like, bro, I was like, you said come around for dinner. And he's like, Yeah, like come around for dinner. And yeah. there was like auntie, uncle, grandparents, yeah. you know, oh cousins. Like it was yeah. so cool. It's so true. Yeah, it was awesome. But like if I was to say someone like come around for dinner, it's like it's just like me and mum coming for dinner. It's different, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's weird, isn't it? I went to high school with um, a girlfriend of mine. She's Tongan. And so exactly the same situation. I, I knew a little bit about her culture because we used to do um, in music class, you could pick like an instrument or a specific cultural thing and you could cover it. And she always did, she had a traditional dance that she didn't had like did like a clap with her. Ooh, I don't remember yeah. all of it. But it was fucking amazing to watch. I remember she used to do this thing with her fingers and I'm like, how do her fingers even move like that? Like it was like a... Anyway, I'm not doing it justice. It was very beautiful. Um, and so I knew a little bit about her, her culture mm. because of that and just certain things that she'd send in conversations. But same thing, I remember after school once, she's like, oh, just come hang out at ours before you go home. And I knew her and her brother were in my the same year as me. Um, and then they had a younger brother, so I knew there was three of them. But, yeah, you get there and there was, like, 40 people. And I'm not, I sat down for dinner and I'm not a big eater and I remember getting really anxious <laughs> that I was going to get yelled at for not eating enough and I was, like, berated the whole yeah, time. They wouldn't let me walk home by myself. Yeah. They made me take takeaways home. Yeah. Every time I'd see her family in the street from then on, it would be like, are you eating enough? Because you don't look like you're eating enough. Oh, and it was just all the time. But it was so beautiful. And I even see them now. Like, they still yeah. live up where I grew up and I still see, like, her grandma and her aunties, yeah. like, just in the street or whatever, and they're always like, oh, my God, how are you? And they run over and they, like, yeah. cuddle you and it really embrace you. And it's just there's such a love there amongst oh. that culture. It's really beautiful. It reminds me of my mum. Like, we have an yeah. open-door policy at our house. Like, yeah. not because we choose to, but people just walk through. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, my parents always talk about it, like, we always, because there's seven, eight of us in the house. Seven of us. Oh, I can't even remember. Um, but my mum always cooks like there's 20 people. Right. Like, because you can't guarantee. That there's not going to be. That there's not going to be someone that turns up. You know what I mean? And right. And more often than not, someone always turns up. Um, you know what I mean? And so like our house is just kind of like, my dad would call it a halfway house because there's so many people that come through. And my mum would never say no to anyone. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like some days we're cooking for like 50. Other days we're cooking for like 10 people. You know what I mean? So. But, like, just what Josh said in terms of, like, um, people, like, the Islanders, like, hanging out and stuff. Like, it just reminds me of work because I worked in a team. There was me and then I had um, two, like, Aussie guys that I worked with. And, like, every day we'd walk around, we'd see, like, an Islander and we'd be like, oh, Supples, how are you doing, bro? And we'd talk, you know, we'd 
shoot the shit for like a good five minutes, you know, and they're standing there waiting for me and they're like, oh yeah, boom, boom. And I'd be like, sweet, later we'll some off. And then we'll walk off and they're like, oh man, I don't know your mate works here. And I goes, nah, that, I just met him for the first time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, like, I don't what? know him. They're like, what? And they're like, yeah, nah, I just met him. I don't even know who he was. <laughs> you know? It's so true. And then they're like, how'd you do that? And I'm like, oh no, just an islander. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Mm. And then, and I'd be like, why don't you do that to that guy? And he's like, I don't know him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, it's different, bro. Yeah, he's like, can't do it, man. We don't and talk then, to people we don't know. know. Yeah. So, but it's also like, it's also that kind of thing. I don't know if you've um, <laughs> seen that, like, Kim Peel clip where, like, Barack Obama, <laughs> yeah. Prince Hensby, Barack Obama, and he's like, hello, hello, hello. Yeah. It's kind of like that. Like, I'd walk into, like, a space and I'd be like, hey, man, how are you? G'day, mate, how you doing? And I'd see him and I'd be like, sup, bro? Yeah. How you doing? <laughs> so good. For you two, like, are looking like but you're like holding that. back the laughter. So yeah. I want to watch it now. Barack Obama's in the, the change room of a basketball team. I don't yeah. know team is. And there's, like, a whole bunch of white guys and he shakes their hand. Hello, how are you? Hello, how are you? And there's um, a black guy and he's using the biggest bro hug. <laughs> <laughs> I say, my man, what are you doing, bro? And then the so white guy next to me is like, hey, how are you? Hey, hey how are you going? Nice to meet you. But that, that was the kind of thing, you know, and like, and I've always known that, like, being an islander. And I guess moving to Australia um, and not being surrounded by so much islanders, like back in Auckland, mm. whenever you, I see an islander, it's actually crazy. Like, my wife would be like, oh, my God, it's your people. And I'm like, look at them. I'm like, what well, my people? You know what I mean? She's like, over there. And I'll look and then he'll be like, and I'll be like, oh, what's up, bro? What's up, yes, bro? my people. She's like, you know what? I'm like, no. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so there's always kind of just that easy familiarity with, yeah. with, with Pacific Islanders, you know? And even though we don't know each other, we, we probably act like we're best friends and stuff. And yeah. So that just kind of made me laugh because I thought about that. It's That's so cool. true, though. One thing I did learn in Parker was how to talk with my eyebrows. Yeah. With all the voice, like this. I have conversations with kids and stuff, like just eyebrows yeah, all over yeah, the place. Yeah. yeah. So That's good. it. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I remember this one funny time. Um, we are in a unit and there was probably three or four island boys sitting together and they're yeah. all laughing. I think that was being someone. Yeah. And they're all laughing, bro, having the best time. Yeah. And I said to one of my mates, I go, what are they talking about? And he just listened for a second. And he goes, oh, they're pretending to be like old drunk men. <laughs> and they were like, just like, just being kids, like with their calves and they were laughing and spilling water and then I watched them again it was just so funny so I don't know where that fit in, in their lives oh, or man. just like their dads or grandparents that would sit around yeah, yeah. like a Friday or Saturday night they were going so for like funny. 20 minutes half an hour just like cracking up laughing it was pretty cute. yeah, yeah that's funny. actually hilarious because like I'd sit around now with like a lot of my island mates from uni and we'd just like joke around like we'd laugh about like what we used to have for dinner when we were like 10 years old and like we'd literally piss ourselves. <laughs> and like if you're someone looking from the outside, you'd be like, man, these people are just cooked. But we're laughing like like how much wheat bix we used to have for like, for like dinner, you bro, know? I don't like, know how many wheat bix you have. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how many wheat bix would you do? Oh, bro, I could smash 12. Yeah. Yeah, like, okay. Easy. But then we'd laugh about like, oh, we ran out of milk, so we'd use like hot water. <laughs> or, the, or the cold or the hot kettle was broken, so we had to use cold water. Like, we just laugh, like, things like that, you know, you just, like, laugh about it. It's just so funny. (laughs) Is there something growing up for you culturally that at the time you were just like, this is just the way it is, it doesn't, Mm. no different, but now you look back and it's, you know, whether that's, um, you know, because you've learned about, like, Anglo lifestyles and culture, there's not much really there to be told, but is there something that you look back on or something that you tell people about your upbringing, like, cultural sort of stuff that they're like, what the hell? 
Yeah, oh, actually, that's crazy. Like growing up as an Islander, you weren't like you weren't allowed alone in a room with a girl, right? And um, until a certain age, or ever, or well, until you're married, basically. <laughs> it was just like a respect thing. You couldn't. Um, and then also another funny thing is, you can't. You have to wait. If you have to wait to eat. Like, there's a certain protocol to how you eat. Okay. Um, that was one thing that blew my mind when I went to a, my first mm. white friend's house. <laughs> they just eating. <laughs> and everyone was just eating. <laughs> like, and um, so there's a certain, like, protocol as to how you eat. Um, yeah, just, like, certain, like, cultural things, like paying, like, giving money to your parents. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you work. For us, it's, like, second nature. Like, we yeah. work, we give money to our parents. Yeah. You know what I mean? We didn't even think about it. You know, until I met my friend, we'll call him Harley. Um, we used to work at the, at the grocery together, and like we used to make like make like what three hundred bucks a week, which was heaps for us. And he's and he's like, "What are you doing with your money?" I'm like, "I'm giving it to my parents." He's like, "Bro, that's illegal." <laughs> I, was like, I was like, "What?" <laughs> he's like, "Why are you doing that?" He's <laughs> like, "What do you do with yours?" And he's like, "I'm going to buy some shoes." I'm like, "Are you allowed?" <laughs> That's illegal. And like from then, I was like, you know, like things started churning in my head. I was like, oh my God, is this illegal? Like, should I really be doing this? You know what I mean? And then, but like, you know what I mean? Those are the kind of things that like I look back now and I think, like, wow, those are real big like cultural differences yeah. that we had that we thought was just normal. That yeah. everyone did. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or like having a week long funeral. I don't know if you ever yeah. talk about a funeral. Like, we have funerals that go for days. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so. And you that all have to wear black. black. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. just thought everyone did that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the body has to yeah. sit in the is a room for a certain yeah. amount of time. Because I remember, so my auntie um, was married to a Mardi Gras for a while, uh, for a while um, and they have since separated. But at the time there was like little bits of their culture that I got to see mm. that I was um, intrigued by, didn't really understand. Mm. And then as an adult going to uni, a girlfriend of mine um I went over to her house to do a uni assignment one day and she just didn't even think about it, but her grandmother's dead body was in the living room. Oh, wow. Because they're... Nice. Yeah, and so we were walking in her house and she goes, oh, fuck, by the way. Uh, and I was like, what? Is this coffin? Literally just a coffin in her lounge room with her, her deceased grandmother. And I was like, like, I know this is a thing, but I'm still confused. My brain can't it's compute it. And she's so like, I just funny. forgot to tell you because I just forgot wow. that... That's something that other people don't do. Oh, well, when my grandfather passed away in 2012, he was in my living room for about seven days. Yeah. So, like, it was just, like, that's normal. Yeah, and it's you such a respect oh, thing 100%. as well. Yeah. Like, the the clothing and, like, the cer- isn't there certain meals? Yeah. Yeah, and all of that. Like, it's just. Yeah, it's crazy. It's really crazy. And, yeah, sometimes it's, some people still live within that bubble and thinking that's what's still normal. And I don't know if it is anymore or if. It's funny because people that come from the islands literally try to implement that island life in kind of an urban setting. Yeah. But it doesn't work. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can't, you can't like dig a honey exactly. in the middle of like, you know, you know Warren or something. You can't just like survive on what you grow sometimes. Yeah. Because like, that's not going to pay for your rent, babe. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you nah. know, or like no one's going to hand down some land to you and you can build like a little hut on it. Like you can't do that. You yeah. know what I mean? And, and so... I'm- and yeah. like you can't really just go hunting nah. in suburbia. 
No, right. and so like, and I think that's where a lot of our culture kind of suffers a bit. You know what I mean? Because they're <clears> not able to transition between the two lifestyles. Yeah. Okay. Or they're not, they can't properly balance it, and so that's where, yeah, I feel a lot of the kind of socioeconomic downfall of our community stems from that being not being able to balance that lifestyle properly. Yeah. And so a lot of them will, because when you're in the islands, you don't need to save. Like, what are you saving for? You're not like you're not saving up to buy a mansion. You know, you already think you have. You know, you live off the land, you fish, you eat the food that you mm. kind of provide. So a lot of people that work, they don't understand this concept of saving. You know what I mean? And so they'll spend money, you know what I mean? Or like in the islands, if you don't have work, you go and you find you find stuff, you find money. Yeah. You know, and a lot of them have that concept, you know, like, okay, let's just go to a bird. Like, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah. A prison in the island isn't like Barwon prison. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? It's a little a, bit different. It's a little bit different, you know what I mean? And so they can't transition and understand that some of the things that they do are a bit more serious or necessitate a bit more importance than mm. what they think it is. So that's why I feel like a lot of, yeah, I guess the downfall of our community is mm. understanding that and really working towards bettering that. Yeah, and I think that goes both ways though for us to be more aware of those cultural things. Yeah. If it's an identity, and I, I genuinely, until you said that, I genuinely never thought of that, but that makes so much sense. Oh, yeah. I like, until I met my wife, like, I never really took buying a house seriously. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I grew up in an area where you just pay rent. Like, we all we knew was rent. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, like, or like higher purchase. I don't know if you guys know what that is. No. That's like, it's probably like afterpay. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Like, it's fine to just buy stuff and pay it off slowly. You know what yeah. I mean? No one that, you know what I mean? And so, like, these kind of practices, we don't know. It's not in our culture to understand that. We don't get taught finance mm. in the islands. You know what I mean? Or in our, even within our families, it's nothing, it's not something that's highly practiced. Like, if you ask my parents or, like, my uncles and aunties, like, they, for them to buy a house is like, why? Why would you buy a house? I can just rent. It's cheaper. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You know? They look for the here and now. They don't look Future. 10 years ahead, 15, 20 years, because for them it's like, Why? Yeah. I have the money now, I'll spend it now. And I like financially, like you're smirking when you say it. And I I understand, <laughs> I understand why you think that's funny. But there's also something really beautiful about just living in the now oh, and not yeah. in the future. Mm. I think there's a quote, it's like if you're living in is it if you're living in the past, it, that you're depressed. If you're living in the future, it's anxiety. If you live in the now, it's the balance. Yeah. Something along those lines. I've probably yeah. Absolutely oh, butchered it. Um, no, but I think there's something really fucking... An oh, my God. Is oh. There something now my Siri's going off. <laughs> your Siri and my Siri having a party. Um, yeah, there's something very humbling. And I think we've talked about it before in, like, developing countries. Like, Balinese people are just so fucking humble and beautiful mm. with oh, what they've got. But I think there is something really beautiful about living in the now and yeah. not not thinking about, you know, paying off your mortgage in 30 years' time. Yeah, but you got to understand, like, you got to adapt to the kind of environment you live in, you know yeah. what I mean? And, like, living in the islands, like, you're not saving up for a mortgage. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? But here you got, like, cost of living increases. It doesn't mm. decrease. It doesn't yeah. get easier. You know what I mean? Yeah. Wages, you know, you, you got to pay for these kind of things. Like, things don't just fall off the tree, mm. no pun intended. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like in the islands. But... Maybe they do on the islands. <laughs> How do you feel being removed from that? Um, I feel like as generations go on, we get better. Okay. Or hopefully we get better. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so um, my parents were obviously a lot better than their 
their parents. Yeah. Um, and I can kind of reflect on that and look at that and be like, okay, how can I be a bit better than that? Mm. You know what I mean? And so I guess being a little bit removed from it and kind of looking at it and being like, man, you it's kind of like what it always said in my report card growing up, like this kid has a, a lot of potential, but it's just easily distracted. <gasps> Twins. High five like, you for that. But obviously, I think like that's something that's common. <laughs> I never got like, the potential part, just the distracted part. I see some fun. Easily distracted. Capital D. But like that was like a, running, like a running theme through like all my reports. Yeah. Like this kid could do the work. He could excel if he wanted to, but yeah. he's just so easily distracted in class yeah. or distracts others. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, and I think, and I can look back and I think like, man. We have so much potential as a as a community, as a culture to kind of because our work ethic is there, you know what yeah. I mean? Like mm-hmm. we we come from a background that has a strong work ethic. Yeah. But I think we're not we're not properly educated sometimes or mm. we don't understand a lot of the society or the environment that we live in and how we how it's best to live in that system that system, you know? Mm. And so I can look at it and I'll be like, man, we could do so much more or like you want to help them, but you just don't, I don't know how to sometimes, you know what I mean? And so, like, the only place I can start is helping my own family, you know what I mean? And starting mm-hmm. from there and and telling them to, you know, save $20 a week and I'll spend it on KFC. <gasps> what would you get, though? What would be the order? At KFC? Yep. Oh, for myself? Yeah. Probably just a... And then you're eating it in the kind of... Just a 15-piece <laughs> pack by myself. A what, sorry? A 15-piece. Yeah. Yeah. Four, four large sides. Yeah. Extra large chips. And what drink? Oh, Pepsi Max, no sugar, obviously. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Can't be fucking with sugar, true. No, nah. <laughs> sugar fills you up too nah. much. And plus, it makes you feel healthy when you see no sugar. Yeah. Yeah, it makes you feel better. I'm about drinking a chicken. soft drink that's making me burp because it's Might as well be drinking body... water. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I am drinking water, technically. <laughs> I love it. How do you feel? Sorry, you go. Don't no, mind. no, no, you go. I've been hammering questions. You go. Nah, please. Go. I was just going to say, how do you feel about the concept of when you hear people say Islander time? I feel it's true. <laughs> I feel it's true, but like to be honest with you, yeah, it's true because, we, like I said, we come from a culture that's so relaxed. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like for us, like any time's a good time. Yeah, you know what I mean. And so, like understanding that we come from a culture where, like, literally, it's so chill. Like any everything just starts when you're ready to start. Yeah. There's no kind of clock or there's no kind of person dictating when it does. Actually, the only thing I've ever seen people on time for is church. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Mm. But anything else, God, it's not that important, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, church church you know? is important. I think church the reason important. I raised it is because when we went to that shop bro um, yeah. uh, night, I guess you could say, mm. we walked in and, and things started about half an hour late and the first mm. thing Rob said was, sorry, guys, island of time. <laughs> And everyone pissed themselves laughing. Yeah. Just wondering what your concept of, what your viewpoint on it would have been. Oh, I definitely think there's some truth to it. Mm. Mm. I'm going to start claiming it. I don't know if you can. No, like on with Faisy. <laughs> but when he's, if he's like to work or something. No, just if he's like to me, where have you been? I'm like, oh, oh. under time. My question was, you talked about, I don't know, paraphrase you terribly, but around trying to, impart that knowledge onto other people, um, whether it's around that culture or just yeah. um, values and different things. Yeah. Um, what I think is interesting, the the role that you sat in when you were working in the prison, that, is it recreation? Is that yeah. What, yeah. 
that you sat in the grey area where you were working in the prison and had um, a position of power because you could mm. go home and you yeah. had keys to doors and things. Mm. Did you find it that that was a really good opportunity for you to kind of participate in some rehabilitative work with prisoners? Yeah. Yeah. Because I would imagine, well, I'm fairly sure I know, that the, the prison officers don't really. Yeah. So is it kind of left up to services yeah. like yourselves and the education yeah. team? And-, and I think as well as like <clears throat> going back to what I said, within that environment, you're either custodial or BPS, mm. the services. And the, and the prisoners understood that. And so their relationship with custodial staff was very different from that of VPF staff in the sense that, like, it was, there was clear lines of, like, you're custodial, I'm, I'm prisoner. Mm. Like, you never cross that line. You know what I mean? There was no handshakes. Mm. There was no, like, calling you by your first name. Yeah. It was very just business. Mm-hmm. All business, you know what I mean? Whereas if you were working in VPS offender services, those barriers were a little bit more easier to cross or mm. to kind of bridge. Mm. Um, and so building rapport and, and kind of developing those uh, relationships or um, working relationships, sorry, I should say, with the clients was a lot easier. Mm. Just from the get-go, them understanding that you're not custodial, they're like, okay, cool. They can call us by our first name. Mm. Yeah. And that was kind of like the big difference, you know what I mean? What did you wear to work? Shorts and a T-shirt. Casual clothes? Yeah. Yeah. Not casual, but it was like it was correctional uniform. Yeah. Yeah. But just shorts and a T-shirt and just sneakers. Difference in colour? No, still blues. Okay. We still wore blues. Yeah. But it was a very clear distinction in terms of who we were. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because um, because of the work. Because we just looked different to begin with, but Mm. also we engage them very differently, you know what I mean? Mm. Like we'd call them by their first name. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, We would interact with them one-on-one, whereas with officers it was very rare that you saw them um, with prisoners one-on-one. And we kind of um, interacted with them and and dealt with them in a way that I guess allowed them to let down their kind of barriers and Mm. their kind of animosity that they felt towards the system mm. a bit better and, and engage with us in a way that we were able to have conversations and talk about things that they wouldn't usually talk about mm. with um, workers that weren't in, that weren't officers, you know what I mean? Did you treat them like humans? Is that what you're saying? I mean, <laughs> I'm not saying that, like, officers treated them like shit. Yeah. But um, mm. let's just say, yeah, we... You could interact on yeah, a far we, different level. We had a different approach that yeah. maybe they didn't agree with, but sure. we got a bit more of a response than they would in that sense. And and we needed to do that because our role um, dictated that we had to build rapport mm. to get them to engage within our programs. And That's right. We weren't going to do that mm. calling them like dogs and yeah. C words and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. See you next Tuesdays. Yeah. Because yeah. you, your job role was to provide recreation exactly. and education. Their role was to provide the safety and security exactly. of, a, exactly. know, of a prison. You know and I mean? they did their job and you yeah. did yours. And yeah, okay. So what sort of things would you do with prisoners? Like what what would, let me rephrase, if a prisoner was to be in a prison that yep. you or a program like yours yep. was working in, what would they expect to participate in or have provided or given them op- yeah, give cool. the opportunity so, to participate in? Um, on a day-to-day basis, we would we would kind of, we did sport. We did sport across the board. So we'd organise uh, recreational activities every day. 
but every so often we'd do cultural activities. Um, so like lending to like whatever kind of events are being celebrated. So we had like a, a Waitangi day, which was specifically aimed at Kiwi, Pacific Islanders and uh, Maldives. Um, and then we have like, you know, an Asian celebration for like Chinese New Year and things like that, like Vietnamese celebrations and stuff. We celebrated like um, Ramadan mm. and obviously in Eid and stuff like that for, I guess, uh, people of the Muslim culture or Islamic culture. And so we would organize those kind of events and stuff like that and we would get the prisoners involved in that and we would kind of try to engage them in um, materials that surrounded that kind of that activity. So like with the Waitangi Day, we did like the haka, we did... Uh, we try to get them food that represented their culture and yeah. stuff like that and get them involved in things like that. But they let you do a honey? Nah. Unfortunately, every kind of um, site had mm. their own kind of protocols in respect to yeah. to what we can and can't do. Mm. Um, and being that it was a maximum security prison that we worked at, <laughs> it was very minimal in yeah. terms of what we could do and couldn't do. I thought so, it was mm. a long shot, but I thought I'd ask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one. But I think really, as you were talking, I was thinking about it. A lot of people, especially your long-timers that go into custody, mm. might obviously do something pretty significant to get a good amount of time incarcerated. Will, what, and I'm doing the air quotes, is it'll, it's often talked about that they find God. Yeah. And, and um, for a number of different religions and what that might be. But it's interesting that there was such a, a big um, pressure put on actually celebrating culture, mm. and I think that would be so inviting for people yeah. that are in Custody, because often it was a bit of a piss take. Oh, yeah, he went to, you know, he was inside for 10 years and he fucking found God. And you'd be like, yeah. oh, okay. And it sort of takes away the validity of their religion there. Like, <laughs> yeah, he might have done something shit and he might have gone to prison, but he's that's his religion. If that's yeah. something he's identifying with, then he's, you know, you're taking the piss a little bit there. So to, to hear that there's, like, culturally yeah. things that were, I guess, celebrated for them yeah. is exciting. And it was good and, like, engagement levels were relatively high compared to what, you think it would be, you know what I mean? In terms mm. of, I guess initially you, you kind of think like, oh, no one's going to, no one wants to do this. Everyone's going to take the piss out of it and things like that. But engagement was really good, you know, and like you said, it just appealed to a lot of people that were probably in the system and, and needed to get in touch with that kind of, that identity that they feel like they've lost since yeah. being within the system, you know what I mean? And so it was good for us to provide um, programs and a service like that for them. And because of that, like, I feel... I got more out of my job than I feel that officers would have, you know what I mean? Mm. Because at the same time, because we treated them with respect, a lot of them gave us that respect back, Mm. you know what I mean? And more often than not, they were the ones looking out for us, Mm. like in the yard, you know what I mean? Yeah. So a lot of people didn't give us as much shit or didn't talk about us as much because of the amount of respect that we gave to a lot of people Mm. and the amount of services and programs and stuff like that, that that we provided for them, you know? Mm. And it was it was definitely rewarding work in the sense that, like, you definitely got to meet a lot of people. And you have to understand, you're working in an environment where you could almost say, like, 70% of these people, 70 80% of these people commit crimes under the influence. Yeah. You know what I mean? And now they're put into an environment where they have to sober up, mm. you know? And so, like, you're spending, like, maybe weeks with a person, you're like, man, how did you do what you did? Mm. And he's like, nah, man, I'll just cook the rice. Yeah. You're like, but you're one of the nicest people I've ever <laughs> met in my life. Like, mm. you know, how did you commit that, like, the ag burg or, like, that home invasion or something like that? And he's like, I don't know, man, I wasn't out of my mind. And I was just like, wow. You know, because there's, there's a space where they're supposedly supposed to be sober. Mm. Mm-hmm. Supposedly. 
Um, but like to a certain extent, a lot of them are sober, and they they are probably down to their, I guess, their purest mm. form. Yeah. Of what they've been in a while, you know what I mean. And so you get to genuinely meet people as well. Yeah. You know, and it's it's just awesome to kind of engage with people on that level, you know, and just understand that like they're just good people. Some of them, you know. Yeah, mm. and and good, and I think the reality is is that sometimes we we are such labelers as society mm. and like you're an offender or you're a criminal yeah. or you know you're a drug user yeah. or you know um you're psychotic yeah. you know we, we label people and I think for us it's because it, we can comprehend what people have done when we label yeah. them easier or they're just a good person that did a shit thing yeah yeah and it's not like it's not like it's not saying all of them are like that you know what I mean like there's some genuine yeah. assholes in there you know yeah. like some some people who genuinely love doing that kind of stuff you yeah. know or are just lifetime institutionalized yeah. people you know what I mean yeah but then on the other hand like you you meet some people who've done some crazy stuff but like just their life has just been mm-hmm. turned upside down you know and so just a moment of madness mm. maybe sometimes or just because of a simple addiction, you know? Yeah. yeah. And that's what I feel like a lot of the officers sometimes miss out on, you know what I mean? And mm. and I think that's because of the culture that they work in. They can't cross that barrier. But a lot of them want to, you know what I mean? Like a lot of them, yeah. you can see they're just like, they want to engage with them. But yeah. because of the, I guess the, what do I say, the stigma that's attached with being an officer, mm. you just don't do it. Yeah. You know? Because otherwise you become alienated or you just be, you know, Round upon or seen in a different light. We're colluding with, colleagues, with you know them. I mean? yeah, yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Whereas with us, they saw us in a different light. You know what I mean? Like our yeah. relationship with officers were very different. Yeah. We were seen as, ugh. You know what I mean? Like, what are you doing? Yeah. yeah. Do gooders. Yeah, stuff. you're yeah. like, ugh. The fluffy know? guys. Exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean? We're like, ugh. You know? And so, but you can see a lot of them want to cross that barrier but can't because of, you know, the nature of their work. Mm. And I just, I'm, I'm just telling them, man, I'm like, but it's tough. Yeah. You know? And that's why I said there needs to be a change in culture. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I feel like everyone can kind of engage in that level, you know? And I feel like, I don't know, working at Parker, it's a lot easier to break that barrier maybe, you know, to engage with them at, at that kind of level. And I don't know. I just feel like everyone, if you work like that, like, I feel I feel like it'd be a lot, a lot better. Mm. People are humans at the end of the day. Yeah. And, like, the prisoners also as well, they understand, like, if someone treats you like shit, you can treat them like shit, you know? Yeah. But if you're going to treat someone like a dog, they're going to act like a dog. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's what they say about officers. You're like, you're going to talk shit to me. What makes me, I'm not going to, like, i never done anything to you. I'm going to talk shit back to you. Yeah. But if you talk to me with respect and I treat you like shit, then yeah, give me shit. Yeah. But if I don't, then why why, why, why talk to me shit in the first place? Mm. You know what I mean? Oh. But like, yeah, that's just where I'm at in mm. terms of that. And, the environment, I guess, I loved it, but I just needed change. Yeah. Yeah. Change is as good as a holiday. Oh, 100%. You mentioned before, you said um, probably when you were talking about um, people in custody yeah. being sober yeah. and not using, and I think. Um, supposedly. Yeah, supposedly. I think the funny thing for me, um, I remember going to one of the more rehabilitative prisons um, in Victoria, and I remember the. Um, the manager of it literally turned around and he's like, oh, I'd be a dickhead to sit here and say that there's not drugs in my prison mm. because drugs are everywhere. That's mm. the reality. Mm. And I think that the war stories, I guess, you hear of people getting drugs into prison mm. or people, um, 
using drugs in prison or whatever that might be are always pretty interesting because I think sometimes they have to be pretty creative with how they obtain their Mm. things. So I think when they banned smoking in prison a couple of years back, the guys were getting their nicotine patches, melting down the nicotine patches into tea leaves and rolling darts and smoking them. Um, and I think you hear like little tidbits like that along the way of things yeah. that they do in custody. They're much more creative now. Yeah. Is there like is there any creative funny ones that you can share? Um, yeah, maybe. Let's just say like, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, they're just, they're very creative in the sense that like, yeah, you're right. Um, drugs are in the system. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and how they go about getting it sometimes just baffles me. Yeah. Um, and how they use it, obviously, is just is crazy as well. Let's just say kettles may be involved, like, you know, pieces of foil, which I don't know where they get from. And, you know, just a lot of <clears throat> blown fuses because of the PowerPoints mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So Yeah, it's, uh, was it a battery, a piece of foil, and a um, paperclip, I think, would start a little... A little spark. That was a common one. Yeah. yeah. I, I heard it. I've never actually asked anyone. You might know that people would whack up um, Vegemite and you get a vitamin B hit. But I don't even know what a vitamin B hit would be like. But that's what yeah. someone told me once. You know that? I think um, now they've banned it. Banned Vegemite. Vegemite. Yeah. Oh, so there must be some truth to it then. Yeah. You whack it up and you get a vitamin. I've never heard that. Yeah. Kombucha. You can't have kombucha in prison. Oh, because you um, can. Um, like brew. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, well, it ferments. Yeah. Turns into alcohol. Yeah. Right. Anything that has alcohol, like it has an alcoholic base, can't mm. go into prison. Mm. But I mean, homebrew. Homebrew is like, mm. you know, people make homebrew. Yeah. Cool yeah. thing that they make. People try to make homebrew all the oh, time. Oh, man. It's tough. Yeah. Like one cool thing that they make in prison is they make yogurt. Ah. They make well, yogurt. Off, they do it themselves. Yeah. For fun. Well, no, for fun, they, like they just, they just, they just, cook it up themselves yeah. with, like, milk and stuff like that. So they're very creative, you know what I yeah. mean? Um, Why do they make the yogurt? They like, uh, obviously, because with a lot of Middle Easterns inside present, they love eating food with yogurt and stuff. I've had their cereal, granola yeah. with yogurt. Right. Like, I remember one time I seen a guy who used a, uh, have you seen those roller toasters that you can put, like. Yeah, um, they're at like hotels just, and yeah, stuff. Just, yeah. Yeah. Usually at the buffets at yeah. hotels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just... I saw a guy who. Made a contraption out of it to make pizza. Oh yeah! And I was just like, I remember one day I was just like walking past and I looked at it. I was like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "Oh, you want to slice a pizza face?" And I was like, "What do you mean pizza?" And then he just like pulled the top off the um the toaster, and he was literally grilling a pizza like a pizza he had made inside the toaster. What a legend! And then I was like, "How do you know how to do that?" And he's like, "Oh, I was at Barwon for like six years." Yeah. And I was just like, "Time up. got nothing but time." Just time. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then I've seen them, like, they make, like, Mars bars. I've seen people make, like, cheesecakes. Wow. You know what I mean? And, like, they're just very creative people. You yeah. Know, and they need to be, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I tell a lot of them, I'm just like, man, if you can kind of direct that energy in another direction, you know what I mean? Like, gosh. Absolutely. In a pro-social way or just towards something productive yeah. for you. Yeah. Imagine, like, the results you would yeah. get. It's crazy. Yeah, it was a good one when I was working at Parkville. It wasn't when I was working there, but in induction they show, they bring out this thing. It's like out of a prison movie or something. And it's like a board with all these different like shivs and different things attached to it, yeah. like the kids have made. And they're pretty fucking good, some of them, like really like pretty ingenious. But this one was a disposable camera on mm. the thing. And we were like, what's that? And what this kid had done 
Um, they were apparently running like a photography program where the kids were given a disposable camera and they take photos of things and they write a little story about it or whatever. But this kid had stolen or got his hands on two nails, somehow attached them inside the camera to the part that sends the electricity around the camera and had made a little taser. So they tested it for the strength and they the, whoever did the test on it said that it wouldn't be something that would kill you, but it would give you a fair old little zap. Yeah. So every time you click the button to take a photo, it would zap. So he was like going to like fucking with kids and stuff and like putting it up against them um, and then clicking the button. Everyone was getting these little zaps. Like, yeah. And yeah, it's That's just cool. like pretty, so creative. Pretty cool. Yeah, disposable cameras and nails. Um, a pretty, I think, rudimentary tattoo gun out of a PlayStation yeah. remote control with the vibrating part that would move up and down a pen and needle and some ink and things like that, which is pretty cool. Love a good home job, Pat. Oh, it's amazing how yeah, you do. Oh, <laughs> man. Yeah, yeah they're crazy. It's pretty cool. And that's just the kids, so God forbid what some of the adults get up to. Yeah. yeah but, and they've had a lot more time to kind of refine their mm. skills, you know what I mean? <clears throat> yeah. Like, <clears throat> like homemade syringes. Mm. Uh, you know what I mean? Like these are things that just are in the prison, you know what I mean? I'm yeah. just like, how do you make a freaking syringe? Yeah. Mm. You know what I mean? And then you see it and you're like, Ah. ah, that's how you make it. Yeah, right. You know, they're very creative, you know mm. what I mean? And I guess when you've had that much time and you spend that much time, sorry, in, in a cell, you know, you're bound to think of something. Mm. Yeah. I think it was you was telling me, Josh, correct me if I'm wrong, There, someone had written a book about prison slang. Yeah, yeah. Um, like an urban di- dictionary but for prison slang. I love this. It's um, Julian Knight, the Hoddle Street Massacre. Yes. Right. Mm. Yeah, he wrote up. He, yeah, I guess composed, composed, uh, and but I think edited out and stuff. Um, and it's available on PDF. Um, and I think because he's been in jail so long that he has the ability, like he has the ability to get on the internet in a limited capacity. Yeah, but he's written, and it's actually really fucking like, like he's written it like a dictionary, like a true yeah. with. The word, the correct sort of, I don't even know what they're called, but like the little symbols that you yeah. use and in brackets and this and the definition, like it's really good. And it's, yeah, it's a history of Australian prison slang. Wow. And it's pretty good. You can get it on PDF. If you look up, probably like Julian Knight prison slang, it comes up. But, and it's long. Yeah. Like it's not a couple of pages. Like it's long. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. Like the prison slang, like, fuck, it's just, it's neck level, man. Yeah. Now, I'm trying to think. What's your favorite? I don't really know any. So like, I think the, you've told me a couple of What do they got? They say Anya. Yeah. Like, they'll say, like, that's one that I picked on real quick. They'd be like, Anya. Anya, Steve O. <laughs> <laughs> Anya, Mikey. And is that like, a, oh, good Anya? Yeah, like, good Anya. Yeah. But they just, you know. A bit of sarcasm. Yeah, like just, they just got rid of good and then just like, Anya. Well, that's Australian yeah. for you. Right? And I think that, yeah, there's something to be said about oh, Aussie slang. Or they'll be like, oh, <laughs> like things that you hear on the street, but in prison they use yeah. a lot, like bags are. You right. know what I mean? Ah, oh, bagza. Or grouse. grouse. Yeah. They use grouse a lot. I love the word grouse. Yeah, what do I call the toilet? The, 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 uh, this is my, the, I can't remember now. It's awesome podcasting again. The dunny? No, nah, no. Nah, it's got a really. <laughs> what? The toilet. Ah. Oh. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Do, do, oh, do, 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 they say, <laughs> say fucking oath a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Like, it's like Bible for them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like no. you say something like, oh, yeah, fuck fucking nice. Yeah. You know, be like, okay, good. <laughs> um, and then, oh, <laughs> I met a couple, like, there was a phase where prisoners were all just going, true. True, yeah. Yeah. True. 
Yeah, I had a client that used to do that. And I'd be like, not true. And he'd be like, true? I'm like, no, it's not true. It's like, um, dude, where's my car? And then, no, and then. <laughs> what was the one that you told me? It was like chicken strips or something. Oh, um, I heard that off someone from someone I work with, but they call it chicken strips. Um, and it was um, buke. Yeah, buke yeah. and friend. Yeah, because Blah. it comes in strips. Yeah. Oh, no, they call it chicken. Chicken, that's right, chicken. because it comes in strips. Because it comes in strips. Yeah. So it was a pharmacotherapy. I can either confirm or deny that. Yeah, chicken. What are you going to get in trouble for? I don't know. I just felt like saying that, yeah, they call it chicken. You just wanted to say it. I can confirm or deny. No, but, yeah, they're very creative and I think, man, I definitely learned a lot from working in there and appreciated a lot of what I did in there. Yeah. And I took away heaps, man. I think it's just a whole other world you get an insight to as well. Oh, yeah. And, like, I definitely made some, some good friends there. Yeah. Both serving. And I was going to say, still serving, lifers? Um, I guarantee if I saw them on the street, they'd be like, self days, how you doing? They would. I can yeah. I can just imagine knowing your personality and oh, having visited, and I, <laughs> like having been in, in a prison system, I could just imagine you would be the fucking vibe. They'd be like, Jose, oh, bro. Um, and I think that's where I was kind of, perceived in a certain kind of way by officers <laughs> because I was that one guy, like, I would bypass the console and straight into the unit and I'd be like, yo, what's up, Johnny? How you doing? Yeah. And I'd be like, yeah, let's have a game. Let's have a crack at 13 or something like that, you know? Or, or like, do they play, play 13 out yeah. of prison too? Oh, that's so funny. You know, and then we all play table tennis. I'll get straight into it, you know what I mean? And I'll be in the yard or they'll be like, where's Faze? And then they'll look out in the yard and I'm just sitting on the table just shooting the shit or, like, with yeah. someone for, like, a solid, like, hour, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or I'm doing a workout. With like four dudes, yeah, you know, just by myself, and like officers are just like, oh, you should be doing that. You should be out there alone. I'm like, there should be cameras everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah, you know. And so and, like, and to be fair, if like a thing went down, the last person they're gonna ship's me, right? Exactly. Right? Yeah. Right? Right, Steve. Steve, you're my mate, right? Yeah, my yeah. friends. Yeah, we're good. You know, and so, but that's. That's the kind of person I am. I just love that kind of stuff. And I'm, yeah. I'm always going to be a people person, you know what I mean? And I'm always going to give you the respect until you, you lose that respect otherwise, you know what I mean? And and they're pretty fair. And I think prisoners understand that as well, you know what I mean? Like you give respect, you get respect. Mm. And kind of anyone that was out, out of line, you know what I mean? They understood, you know, mm. that they deserve what was coming mm. sort of thing, you know? So Yeah. Like a pecking order, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And within prison, there's definitely a pecking order. Yeah. Mm. You know? And one of my, oh God, I don't even know if I want to say this, but one of my favourite things to do was I would always identify um, the heavy. Mm. So whoever whoever ran the unit. Right. Because they're always usually the ones that were the coolest. They were the nicest people. So man. the cool dudes were called the heavy. No, there's and only they, one. There's usually right. only one heavy. Very quiet. One heavy. Yeah. Somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And they're just so nice. Mm. Like, they're the nicest person. You right. Know what I mean, like, they're the ones that you can talk to and they would just... Sh- Chew the fat with you for like hours if you wanted to, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the nicest people, you know what I mean? And it's, and like I'd always identify them. And if you generally had a good relationship with them, everyone will kind of see that mm. and kind of be like, okay, he's, he's cool. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you, you can talk to, you can talk to Faze, you know what I mean? Yeah. And one of the biggest barriers that I kind of broke when I was in there was um, like shaking hands. Yeah. You know what I mean? And um, it kind of started with the Islanders because with Islanders, it was just, it's just in our nature, whether or not 
I was a, I was an officer or like I was working there. It was just it's in our nature to be like, yo, what's up? Yeah. Whereas the island officers had to consciously stop themselves. Mm. Yeah. Because for us, whenever we see each other, we're like, stop, bro, how you doing? You know what I mean? And that was the first kind of time that I kind of broke that barrier or that that third wall, mm. so to speak. And I was like, yo, what's up? And the bond went in, and then I kind of like looked at other people, and other people were like looking at me, and then it was just kind of like, oh. Because even with prisoners as well, they'll look at you and be like, yo, you're, you're touching that screw's hand. Mm. You know what I mean? You just shook his hand, you know? Mm. Whereas a lot of islanders were like, yo, fuck you. What are you going to do? You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know? But but then once people understood who you were and what you did, mm. you know, like a lot a lot more of them came around and, and they were cool, man, a lot of them. Mm. You know, but because of that prison culture or that understanding of the way prison's supposed to be, a lot of them were kind of like, mm. You know? Distance. Distance. Right. Until you kind of you can break that that kind of barrier and you had to figure out uh unique ways to do that. Mm. It was cool. And then when you did it, yeah, you kind of went in. Yeah. Yeah. And like the way I worked was a lot different from the way that my colleagues worked, you know what I mean? But they kind of came around too, you know what I mean? Mm. Like they were shaking hands as well after a while. Yeah. Because I was the only one in my team. I was like, I was so comfortable in there. Like I was like, yo, what's up? And my colleagues would be like, What's going on? Yeah. What's happening here? It's so funny though because Personal it's like boundaries. He's striking hands. That's it. It's so funny though because it's like, yeah, of course I'm not going to be like giving people my phone number oh, telling them where I live yeah. and shit. But like, we're dealing with human beings. 100%. Like, we're, we're fucking human. Like, do you have a football team you go for? Do you like rugby? Yeah. Like, what's your favorite food? Yeah. Oh, shake hands. God. Like, it's so, yes. it's so funny. It is. It's so funny and so weird. And yeah. I, I, I kind of get the ethos behind it and you're not going to have all the correctional officers oh, going yeah. to shaking all the prisoners' hands but at the same time there's got to be a balance in yeah. like job roles mm. and that's yeah. it's so funny yeah and that's where like and it's funny because I was also the only people that were in the kind of correctional role that I was that I kind of had a really good rapport with were the Islander officers because mm. to a certain extent they were still cool with the prisoners you know what I mean mm. like they'd be like they'll shoot the shit with them you know what I mean they've got their style and they'd be like oh what did you do on the weekend and stuff that just, you know, like, oh, what rugby team did you play for? I played rugby here. You know, they'll have those mm-hmm. kind of conversations. But to a certain extent, they knew what lines they couldn't cross, which yeah. they struggled with and things like that. But and I think, like, man, if we can kind of break that kind of barrier, man, I feel like, I don't know, rehabilitation will be a lot more easier mm-hmm. to kind of, mm-hmm. like, intercede. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Mm. But, yeah. Interesting. I hate shaking hands. You do? Yeah. Dude, I, I mean, now that COVID's on, I think everyone's going to be a bit apprehensive about shaking hands, you yeah. know what I mean? I remember the first time a client put their hand out to shake my hand, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? You I don't know it. what it is. I've just never been. No? Maybe because I'm female. I don't know. I know guys are, like, pretty common mm. handshake. It's yeah. just never something I've done. And yeah. then moving into the youth sector, the biggest thing I fucking loved was, like, the fist bump. Mm-hmm. I can fucking fist bump all day long. That doesn't make me uncomfortable. You get a yeah. fist bump. You yeah, like, I'm the Oprah of fist bumps, right, with my young people. I don't give a shit. You want to give me a fist bump? I don't care. That's fine. I'm down. But I love now that young people don't shake your hands. It's like a fist bump. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Yeah. I could never get around the handshake. But, no, that was awesome, man. Like, I got to, I guess, my my third year working correction and just seeing my team, man, like, they were just more comfortable. Yeah, you know, being around other like prisoners and just being like, "Yo, what's up?" And prisoners also coming up and just being like, "Yo, what's up? How you doing?" Mm. You know what I mean? You're just creating mutual respect. It's yeah, there's something about it. But also, they, they respond a bit. You know? Yeah, like, we ask them, we're like, "Yo, to do something that you know, like they would do it." 
Mm. Not because they had to do it, but because they looked, they understood it. You know mm. what I mean? And they, they understood who you were and the kind of person and the work you're doing. They're like, that's oh, sweet, I'll do it. Mm. You know what I mean? So, yeah. That was good. Nice. Well, before we close out, we have a final question. If you had any piece of advice for any... Why are you covering your eyes? This isn't scary. Oh, sorry. I'm not going to ask you about any discretions. Relax. Oh, yeah? <laughs> if you had any piece of advice for any <laughs> new up-and-coming new and emerging workers into the field, what would it be? Oh, man. I thought you were going to ask me if my wife knew I was here. <laughs> um, seriously, nah. I'm here, babe. Um <laughs> She knows I'm gonna get her to listen to it. Yeah. Um yeah, uh I guess take your time. Like you're never gonna know what you wanna do until you actually do it. You know, and you're not gonna get it the first time. You may not get it the second time, but I guess just persevere, take your time and understand it, you know what I mean? Mm. And like and be okay with the fact that it might not be what you thought it would be or it might not be for you and be okay with that. You know what I mean? Like I never, ever thought I'd be in this kind of industry and enjoying it, but I am. Like I always thought I'd be in like the corporate world. Yeah. Making big bucks, driving big a Ferrari. Bulk money. Exactly. You know Instead I mean? you just wear fancy socks and Nike. Nike, Um, what are they called? Tech please. Tech please. <laughs> um, but definitely my only advice is just, just take your time. And if it's something that you don't love, don't do it. Yeah. Like that's my one piece of advice. If you don't enjoy working in this industry, yeah, don't do it. And if you're working in this industry to make money, get out. GTFO. <laughs> <laughs> because, babe, I'm going to burst that bubble. Yeah. You ain't making money here, Mm-mm. okay? No one in our field is breaking bank <laughs> unless they've inherited okay. it. <laughs> But that's the honest truth. Like, just yeah. if it's not something you love, don't do it. But if it is, persevere. Take your time. Yeah. You know? And there's so many different um, pathways and avenues within mm. this industry that you can take. Like, don't feel like if you've gone through one door and it doesn't open for you, there isn't another one for you because mm. there is. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And so there's always opportunities to help people and to serve the community and just keep looking. Persevere. Yeah. I love it. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Thank Legend. you, Josh, and that. <laughs> I love your studio, by the way. Thanks. <laughs> so fancy. It's cost you about 50 grand. Yeah, with all the bloody um, fruit flies that are flying around yeah, right yeah. now, we've been attacked for the past two hours. Yeah, but I'm in. <laughs> oh, that's us, I reckon. Thanks for listening to another episode of Knowledge on Tick. Please like and share the podcast, invite your friends and colleagues into the group and get in touch if there are any guest speakers you'd like to hear from or any topics you'd like covered. Take care and enjoy your week.